In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, Word of God, reveal more of yourself to us through your presence in the Bible. Led by the Holy Spirit, guide our time of reflection. May it increase our desire for you in the Scripture and in the sacrament. Amen. At first glance, what's happening in our verse reading this week is totally bizarre. Abram, who later became Abraham, splits a bunch of animals in two and then places them across from each other. After the sun goes down, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appear and pass in the middle of the cut-up pieces. Just what on earth is going on here? Well, what's happening is the cutting of a covenant between Abram and God. In the ancient Hebrew world, when two people wanted to make a promise to one another, they would cut an animal into two pieces and then walk through the middle of that animal. In a sense, it was like saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain then you can do to me as we've done to this animal. Think of it like a really, really high-stakes pinky promise. That's what's happening here. The Lord God says that he's going to give to Abram a number of things. Descendants as numerous as the stars, an expansive inheritance of land, and a blessing. But if God's going to promise these things to Abram, he has to put his money where his mouth is. Thus, he makes the covenant with him. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch in this story stand for the Lord God. He passes through the animal pieces and the covenant is made. But notice how Abram doesn't pass through the pieces, only the Lord God does. That's because this covenant is unilateral. That is, God is promising all these things to Abram, but without Abram having to do much of anything except have faith that God will deliver. Abram put his faith in the Lord, who credited it to him as an act of righteousness. Just as with the first reading, our first glance at the second reading can also raise some questions. Right from the get-go, we hear Paul say to the Philippians, Join with others in being imitators of me. This seems a bit conceited, right? Well, in the Greco-Roman world at the time, teachers were expected to live out the message they taught. And if they didn't, their teaching was undermined. Therefore, if Paul was going to preach about Jesus, he had to imitate him as best as possible. Paul's main point of conversation in this passage is about the enemies of the cross of Christ. Who are these enemies? Well, there are two main hypotheses. First, these enemies could be the Judaizers, whom Paul talks about earlier in this third chapter. The Judaizers claimed that Christians had to follow the Mosaic law, including circumcision. Based upon this, when Paul says that their God is their belly, he could be describing how the Judaizers continue to claim ritual eating as the means of righteousness. When he says that their glory is their shame, this could refer to the shame of circumcision. Yet the second, and I believe more convincing, theory behind the enemies of the cross of Christ are whom we could call nominal Christians. These would be people who once resolved to follow the Christian way but are failing to live the sacrificial invitation of the cross. Instead, they glory in self-absorption, overeating, and carousing. Evidence for this theory is that Paul says he has told the Philippians about them, meaning that they weren't already familiar to the community like the Judaizers would have been, and that they would have brought Paul to tears. And while the Judaizers' misconduct brought Paul not to tears but to anger, the misconduct of fellow Christians would have brought about tears. In this passage, Paul also famously tells the Philippians that their citizenship is in heaven. This has added significance to the residents of Philippi because it was a Roman colony. Some Christians in the city had Roman citizenship and prided themselves on being connected with that city of Rome miles and miles away. Paul uses the same analogy here. Your true homeland may seem very far away, yet you are citizens of it. So take pride. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke all contain accounts of Jesus' transfiguration. Yet our passage from Luke this weekend differs from the other two in a couple of ways. Firstly, we're told that the transfiguration occurs as Jesus was praying, which is also what Luke says happens right before the epiphany at Jesus' baptism. And also, while Mark and Matthew describe Jesus' total change of form, a metamorphoreo, Luke says here that only Jesus' face changes in appearance. This is because Luke wants to heavily connect the transfiguration event with the event of Moses going up to Mount Sinai and his face becoming radiant. But there are a number of other allusions to Moses here in the passage. For one, and most obviously, Moses is mentioned along with Elijah. Jesus has taken a handful of followers up this mountain just as Moses ascended Mount Sinai with a number of his followers, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 others. The appearance of the cloud reminds us of when Moses experienced the cloud covering the tent of meeting. And finally, just in case we haven't caught on to all of this yet, Luke says that Moses and Elijah were discussing Jesus' exodus, very clearly a term referring to Moses. Finally, the passage introduces the presence of Moses and Elijah by saying, Behold, two men. This exact same phrase, word for word, occurs two other places in Luke's gospel. At the resurrection of Jesus, when two angels appear, and at the very beginning of Acts of the Apostles, at the moment of the ascension. So that's it. That's your Sunday setup for this second Sunday in Lent in year C. May this knowledge of the story behind the scripture allow you to encounter Jesus Christ in a new way this weekend. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.